he does have this thing where he talks about drinking pure huckleberry juice, and it reminded me of the branch water and pure grain alcohol that Sterling Hayden's character uh, drinks in, in Dr. Strangelove, which I think you had a Dr. Strangelove point to make, right, Chair? Oh, yeah. Well, I compared uh, Dr. Amp to Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper, who, as we know, was very concerned about his precious bodily fluids. Right. So we had the same association there. It's incredibly obvious, isn't it? A foreign substance is introduced into our precious bodily fluids without the knowledge of the individual, certainly without any choice. That's the way your hardcore commie works. Jack, Jack, listen, tell me, tell me, Jack, when did you first become, well, develop this theory? Well, I, uh, I, I first became aware of it, Mandrake, during the physical act of love. Huh. Yes, a, uh, a profound sense of fatigue feeling of emptiness followed. Luckily, I, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. Loss of essence. Yeah. I can assure you it has not recurred, Mandrake. Women, uh, women sense my power, and they seek the life essence. I do not avoid women, Mandrake. Yeah. But I, I do deny them my essence. <laughs> Okay, everybody, welcome back to Wrapped in Podcast Episode 5. I'm really excited to talk about this episode. And with us this week again is T. Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing well, and I have a hammer. And Ken, how are you? I'm doing well, but the fucks are at it again. They are, but I've got a magic flashlight. So we're going to shine that magic flashlight on episode five of Twin Peaks, The Return. Watching this episode was different for me than watching the first four hours of season three of Twin Peaks. I found watching it to be really exciting. I really wanted to see what was going to happen next. I think having spent two weeks, you know, fully wrapped up in four hours of television that were totally remarkable and not sort of bringing me from point A to point B at all. Whereas watching episode five, I was just really excited to see what was going to happen next. How did you guys react to watching this episode? Uh, well, it was interesting to me to see that we were starting to move things along. Uh, a lot of plot points seem to be developing, which we'll get into as we as we go forward. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that just did not happen and just did not move forward. So we, we've really got uh, some interesting setup. It felt like it moved really fast, but at the same time, maybe not as much happened as we think did. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's fair to credit Mark Frost for the way we're finally getting plots that are moving forward, especially in like the South Dakota mystery. And it's been pointed out by others that we've maybe given Mark Frost short shrift so far. So I'm hoping we can all pay attention to the contributions we can perceive from him as we go forward with this. As far as this specific episode goes, I, I found the first half really tough, uh, really difficult to take and not very entertaining. Uh, I really thought it started to round into form in the second half, especially when we got to Doc Jacoby and, and Dr. Amp, which I really enjoyed, as I'm sure we'll discuss later on. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, jumping in directly into the episode, we are in the suburbs of Las Vegas, uh, the Rancho Rosa project, where the goons that we saw previously attempting to assassinate Dougie are on the phone with a anxious and bruised woman named Lorraine. Uh, they report that Dougie's car is still there. Lorraine is really, really upset, and she grabs her BlackBerry, which is ridiculous, and then types with one finger on her BlackBerry the word Argent 2. Now, did she mean to say urgent? Did she mean to say Argent, which means silver? Did she mean to say agent and dropped in an R when it wasn't there? We really don't know. To my mind, the main question here, is Lorraine the one hired by Duncan Todd, the Vegas big shot that we saw who works for a very, very bad man uh, back in episode two? I think in favor of this theory is that Duncan Todd works for a very bad man, Bad Coop is a very bad man, and Bad Coop probably wants Dougie or Good Coop killed. So that would be an explanation. But what I found hard to understand is why Lorraine would 
would be contacting apparently Buenos Aires, where this pager or whatever that she sends the message to is, about a job that Duncan Todd had hired her to do. Uh, It seems like she's going way above the chain of command, which I found, you know, hard to understand. Yeah, just two more possibilities for the Argent I want to raise uh, on the highly tangential uh, portion of the spectrum. Since we all agree this is horror movie David Lynch, uh, Rod Argent was in The Zombies, and if you say Argent 2 fast enough out loud, it sounds like Argento, uh, or Dario Argento, or Asia Argento, uh, Dario being the master of Italian horror, and Asia being his daughter. And as long as we're uh, talking about uh, Argentina, which is where this this uh, text message appears to go, uh, I might as well take this opportunity to trot out my weekly wacky theory involving famous figures from the 1970s. And hear me out. Stay with me here. I think Philip Jeffrey's disembodied spirit is trapped inside the black box in Buenos Aires. I mean, we know in this series that people's spirits get trapped in stuff. We saw uh, Josie Packard trapped in a doorknob. We uh, have reason to believe the log lady's late husband is trapped in the log. And so it makes as much narrative sense to replace David Bowie like this as it does to replace Michael J. Anderson with an electric brain tree, which, come to think of it, could in fact have been the name of a David Bowie backup band. Uh, Buenos Aires, of course, is where Jeffries was last seen. Doppelcooper wondered in the premiere whether Jeffries was still nowhere, which didn't seem like it was a metaphorical nowhere. It may imply an actual lack of physical existence. Uh, everyone that we have reason to believe has communicated with Jeffries in the new series, from Doppelcooper to Ray to Albert to Lorraine at the beginning of this episode, appears to have done so electronically rather than physically. And then at the end of this episode, we see the black box being reduced to a silver ball after Doppelcooper works some kind of magic, which is exactly what happened to Dougie. And we know that Dougie was uh, manufactured for a purpose, and he may well have been a form without a spirit, So why wouldn't the same silver ball reductionism, which also could have been the uh, name of a Bowie backup band, apply to a spirit without a form? And one last thing, uh, JR, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, with a book that was published last year by Robert Dean Lurie called We Can Be Heroes, came out from Liberty Island Media Group. And uh, JR, I think you were thanked in the acknowledgments of it. And it mentioned the fact that David Bowie, who of course played Philip Jeffries, was heavily influenced by Aleister Crowley, uh, who figures prominently in the secret history of Twin Peaks in the supernatural spiritual side of things. So we're all wondering where Philip Jeffries is. I'm thinking inside the box. This is great. And for a change, I totally buy it. I actually think this is plausible. No, I was just going to say, I think we need a jingle for Kyle's Conspiracy Corner. But go ahead. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think that's right. Kyle's Conspiracy Corner uh, should become a regular feature in the show. Yeah. So moving on, the, the next scene after this relatively brief scene is we're in Buckhorn. Uh, we get to see investigator Constance, who also apparently does autopsies. Uh, she does stand up. Uh, I don't know. Would you guys go see her stand up act? Definitely. No doubt about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, she's great. I, she's she's definitely the best thing in Buckhorn. Uh, anyway, the decapitated body that had been attached to Ruth's head or loosely placed underneath it turns out to have a ring inside the body. Uh, and the ring is inscribed. Uh, basically, it's, it's a ring that was given to Dougie by Janie E, according to the inscription. So how it's there, why it's there, or is someone trying to pin some sort of crime on Dougie? Who knows? But I am doubling down on my earlier claim from previous weeks that Major Briggs's doppelganger is that body. Yeah, I mean, they had a fingerprint match that came back uh, military, and wasn't it from that corpse? Yes, it was. And so then we're going to get a scene later in this episode about um, how Briggs's fingerprints have shown up again somehow. Uh, so that I, I think that's got to be the implication. Right. I'm, I'm just trying to point out that I was right. Early. Oh, you were so yeah. right. Oh, sure. No doubt. No doubt about it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's what matters is, am I correct? Yes, um, totally. <laughs> and so we go from this scene to a scene in Yonkers Federal Prison, maybe one of the most striking episodes scenes in this whole episode the bad coop 
is in prison. And it occurs to me that as bad as the bad Coop is, he definitely has some good Coop qualities to him that are not Bob qualities, but are, you know, really do remind you of the original Coop. He says, as he's lying down in bed, that this is the time that food is going to come. And of course, at exactly that moment, you know, some guard comes by with his tray of food. And it reminded me a lot of how the good Coop in the first two seasons would do the same thing. He would somehow be able to know exactly when something was going to happen 30 seconds before it was going to happen. Like, for example, when he says the log lady is going to come into the office in, you know, one minute. And she does. The bad Coop is very level-headed. He, he's not flustered at all. Uh, he, he, he does have the same kind of quality of constancy and almost tranquility that the good Coop had. But instead of the sort of boy-like curiosity, uh, it's just sort of simmering rage. But anyway, that's something that I thought of. But then he gets up and he looks in the mirror and he sees Bob's face and we get to see uh, there's a flashback, of course, to the finale of season two in the bathroom of the Great Northern in Coop's room. But there's this point where as Coop is looking into the mirror, sort of the muscles around his mouth flex in a certain way that absolutely make you think of Bob, of Frank Silva's face. And I don't think it was CGI. I think it's just more incredible acting by Kyle McLaughlin, who now is, you know, representing like four or five different characters at this point between the original Coop, the Black Lodge Coop, Slow Coop, and, you know, that came out for Dougie, Dougie, Frank Silva emerging through Coop's face. I mean, he's done all of it. It's really amazing. I thought a little less of uh, the good Cooper predicting people are going to walk in at certain moments and more of just the way a criminal would case a joint and just learn all of its ins and outs uh, so that he could infiltrate it. Uh, we're going to learn, obviously, that bad Coop has some power over the systems and uh, controls of this prison. So I just kind of took this as a sign that he's tapped into all the inner workings of it. He knows exactly when everybody moves where. But I agree with you that I love the uh, scene in the mirror and the uh, facial muscles however they accomplish that it's very cool yeah and the the comment that he makes into the mirror at the image that bob is still with him i think makes it clear that uh he is with doppel cooper uh he's not possessing doppel cooper they're working together but uh but this isn't a matter of bob possessing cooper the way bob possessed uh leland in the original series and and i agree jr the uh it was very creepy it was very effective particularly after the replay from the season two finale and the thing that really made it work was the subtlety of it i mean it was it was this very gradual transition that uh that that it you know moved into play uh very very slowly and i think that's what made it more powerful our next scene is in Twin Peaks, where everyone's favorite jock, Mike, has now gone from being a jerk uh, of a jock to being a jerk of a boss. Um, and this scene really remind me of the Big Lebowski. Uh, this guy, Stephen, comes in whose application for employment apparently is just terrible. So we can be certain that Stephen is not one of Mike's little urban achievers. I honestly didn't recognize Mike. This is the first time I'm realizing that is Mike from our old Mike and Bobby days. Welcome back to Rapton Podcast, the most attentive podcast out there. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. Listen, I didn't get the Weasley characters confused. Don't come after me. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, we're, we're maybe missing the big picture stuff, but we're really honing in on the fine details. That's right. And we go to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Office where Sheriff Frank Truman's wife, Doris, yells at him for a couple of minutes. I thought she sounded a lot like Nadine, but with less mental illness. She's she's tough to watch. The scene is tough to watch. It's another in the catalog of ostensibly quirky things that just... Uh, fall flat, maybe because we don't have bottle of menti music, maybe because everybody leads these depressing lives in Twin Peaks now, according to uh, this narrative. I just, I, I know it was supposed to be entertaining in some way, but I, I got nothing out of it other than wanting it to end rapidly, much like Wally Brando. Right. Well, what's similar to the Wally Brando scene is we've got Frank with a sort of bemused yet stoic expression watching this thing happen in front of him, whether it's Doris ranting or Wally uh, delivering some sort of prose poem. From here, we go back to Lancelot Court, where Janie E., 
somehow believes that Coop is capable of picking up a phone, dialing it, knowing what shadowy creditor or creditors he needs to call, and arranging for the payment of the $50,000 that Dougie and Janie E. apparently owe. Uh, given Dougie's obvious state, uh, it's really hard to believe this, even though Janie E. believes that Dougie's having one of his episodes. But man, if Dougie has episodes like this regularly, I, I can't believe he's not under the care of a neurologist on a like bi-weekly basis. Yeah, but at least the reference to him having one of his episodes uh, gives us some indication that the folks around Dougie Jones aren't just completely oblivious. I mean, Jr., you've already identified why uh, Jade and the casino behaved as they did toward Dougie when this first started. You know, now we hear this comment from Janie E. We later hear his co-workers talk about him being back from Bendersville. Uh, we hear him uh, as described as being off in dreamland again. So all of this suggests that this sort of thing has happened before. Four, uh, which explains why no one is surprised by Dougie's behavior. And it presents some intriguing possibilities uh, of what has happened uh, when this manufactured duplicate has disappeared before. I mean, what's been going on for real when these things have happened in the past? Uh, but it does point out that uh, when will Cooper be back to normal uh, has certainly become the who killed Laura Palmer of Twin Peaks, The Return. And uh, at this point, David Lynch is in no larger a hurry to answer this question than he was to answer the first question. So, uh, Cooper cries. Coop wept. Yes. And, and, and to me, this was uh, one of the most moving things that we've seen in the series so far. Again, it's more evidence of the greater power of the understated as opposed to the overdone, which we've seen a little bit too much of. And JR, this, I think, strongly underscores your point that Kyle McLaughlin is really doing a phenomenal acting job in this series. Yeah, I, I like the next scene quite a lot, even though nothing really happened. Um, it's just this really long shot of first goon Gene and his partner drive by Dougie's abandoned car still in the model home where he had had his encounter with Jade. And they sort of drive by it. They look at it real slowly. Uh, the device that they had planted at the bottom of the car uh, is still there. And then they go by and then another car comes by. And this car is it like it's like Darth Vader's muscle car from the 70s. Uh, it, I mean, it was surprised me that those guys were not, it turns out, not nearly as menacing as they appeared to be because that was a ridiculous car. I mean, like, like if you're going to drive a muscle car and you're from the Black Lodge, like, isn't that the one you'd be driving? I mean, it's like, it, it, it's right. I mean, it's like it, the if the judge from Blood Meridian had a car, it would be that one, although it might be red in his case. Anyway, we just show these two cars, you know, slowly and menacingly come by and look at the at Dougie's car. And I originally had thought that that meant that that there was a sign that there were like two different factions after Dougie or Coop, possibly a bad Coop faction and an Agent Jeffries faction. Of course, we subsequently turns out that that doesn't appear to be the case. The other thing about this scene that's significant is that in addition to the station wagon uh, that's driven, or I don't know if it's a station wagon or a wagoneer or whatever with its wood panels that's driven by Janie E, you know, all, almost all the cars that were seen in this season of Twin Peaks are from the 70s, whereas previously all the cars in the first two seasons in Firewalk With Me were from the 50s. So again, we called it. We called it before the show even came on. We were in the 70s instead of the 50s. Yep. Uh, with our, you know, it's that 70s show cast that, you know, Kyle was able to point out. And uh, I think it was episode negative one or possibly episode zero of Wrapped in Podcast. It would have been zero because I was around. I remember all of the uh, the love boat references that went over my head. But uh, the, so the idea is that the <laughs> Twin Peaks original takes place in the '80s with a lot of nods to the '50s. This takes place now-ish with a lot of nods to the '70s. I mean, obviously there are blackberries and. Um, uh, Dougie's newer, ugly Ford and stuff. So it's not, it's obviously not literally in the seventies, but has all of these, these nods back. It's cool how the two cars that pass in that sequence are basically identical, uh, with one being the extremely black on black, blacked out version of the, uh, one that preceded it. And the, the camera just seesaws back, uh, in one long shot from, uh, the distance back into the foreground to the distance again. Uh, so as to show a parallel uh, motion between the two cars, which is is very cool. It's a it's a cool way of presenting the scene and these two different cars. So we're at or outside the 
building where Dougie apparently works, and we see this statue of a of a cowboy out in front of the office building, pointing a gun off into the distance. Coop has a great affection for this statue. Yeah, and particularly as we later see, he has affection for the shoes. Uh, and and again, this all ties back into the fact that Cooper came through the light socket without his shoes. And then at the end of this episode, we see him adoringly touching the statue's shoes. Uh, JR, you've already likened season three, Dale, uh, to season two, Leo Johnson, uh, who, of course, famously said to Bobby Briggs that Leo needs a new pair of shoes. And if footgear really is going to be essential to the restoration of classic Cooper, it stands to reason that he's going to be getting help from Philip Gerard, Mike, uh, who was, of course, a shoe salesman. Right, right. And uh, in this scene, as Dougie kind of walks into the lobby of the office building, he sort of led... Pied Piper-like by an assistant, I guess, who works with him, who's carrying a bunch of coffee. This version of Coop is to coffee like zombies are to brains. He just kind of kept saying the word coffee over and over again and reaching out for it uh, like a zombie would reach out for brains. So he goes up the elevator and ends up drinking Frank's coffee and is eventually led into a meeting in a conference room where everybody recognizes Dougie, uh, ask him how he's you know, assume that he's been on a bender since he's been out of the office for several days. And, you know, it's very awkward where he's kind of just standing there and eventually sits down. Uh, but I have a lot to say about this scene and about where Dougie works. Uh, Dougie works for a company called Lucky 7 Insurance. Now, it seems to me very strange that you would call an insurance company luck because if you're trying to attract customers, well, if the insurance company is lucky, then that means that inherently the insured is unlucky. And if you you are a lucky person, you don't need insurance. It only makes sense to me that the person who's lucky in this arrangement are the people who own the insurance company, because insurance is probably the most profitable business on earth. In this scene that we have, one of the supposed agents is talking about a claim, uh, presumably a fire claim. The boss person, Bushnell, wants to know if they're going to deny the claim. I have to, I've got to admit at this point that I come at this from a very particular point of view since I spend most of my professional time litigating against insurance companies, but I do have a couple insights as to how they work. Now, I'm sure that there are some insurance companies that uh, do well and actively don't put their interests ahead of their insureds, but none of those companies have names like Allstate or State Farm or Geico. Generally, insurance companies are in the business of making sure that they pay out as little money as possible to their insureds. So when this particular adjuster, and he is an adjuster, he's not an agent, an agent, somebody who sells insurance, but he's called an agent in these scenes, says that we must pay this meritorious claim. I thought he was a hero. The idea that an adjuster would actually stand up for an insured, this is really hard for me to believe. Yet, ironically, Cooper uh, is somehow identifies that this supposed agent is lying with a weird flash of green light on his face. Now, of course, this is uh, evokes the scene in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Office where Coop would determine that someone is lying just by looking at their face. And, and so we're seeing parts of the of the original Cooper slowly seep into the regular Coop. It's interesting to me because I think there's some parallels in this episode between what happens at Lucky 7 Insurance and what happens at the Silver Mustang Casino. Uh, casinos and insurance companies are both in the business of risk. The difference between the two is that a casino controls absolutely the risk because they know the odds of all their games of chance, and they know that on average, they're going to win. The house always wins. As long as they've got a supply of marks and people that want to make functionally bad decisions about like gambling, they're going to be very profitable. Insurance companies can't control all aspects of their risk. They can't control what happens in terms of whether or not somebody gets into a car accident or whether or not you know a house happens to catch on fire. What they can control are their insureds to some extent, and then trying to you know systematically deny claims. The idea that an insurance company here would be prepared and assume that it was going to deny a claim is perfectly consistent with how the business works. So anyway, I, I thought it was very strange the way that this played out and the way that the bad guy is a 
an agent or employee of the insurance company that somehow wants to collude with an insured. And maybe I'm completely on my own here, but that's what really jumped out to me about this scene. I, I think this is going to be a very fruitful scene for all of us. I think we all have a bunch of things to uh, react to and play off of in this scene, but I've had the exact same experience litigating against uh, insurance companies that you have, JR, or well, maybe not as extensive an experience as you have, um, but uh, I have learned uh, or drawn the same conclusions that you have from litigating against them. So I think your analysis is spot on. And uh, I think that the parallel between this and the uh, silver Mustang is very good. Uh, Did did I see a a faint green light appear over uh, the lying adjuster when um, Coop identifies him as lying? Yeah, there are flashes of green light on his, on his face as uh, Cooper right before Cooper says that he's lying. So it's interesting that we get the red light coming through from the red room and the black lodge in the silver Mustang, but a green light here to identify a liar. Um, you know, it's a uh, it's an interesting kind of inversion, I guess. Right? If uh, if the red light in the casino means go. <laughs> towards this slot machine and the green light here means stop or uh foul or this guy is lying right and green is also the color of his jacket his new jacket he had been wearing a yellow jacket previously exactly and of course green is the color of the owl ring right and and it's the color of the green tea latte that frank drinks when cooper drinks his coffee yes true that's right that's right I, i i got a very mikey likes it vibe from the way that Frank really didn't want to drink this green tea latte, really wanted his coffee. He reluctantly grabs the latte and then it turns out he really likes it. I'm sensing a Ken's Beverage Corner coming on. Should we do it? <laughs> yes, please. Let's go for Great. it. <laughs> so uh, Ken's Beverage Corner for this week. Uh, I've seen some folks advancing the idea that this green tea sequence in which Frank is doing his Mikey likes it bit is supposed to be very meta, that it's uh, Lynch speaking to his critics through the lens of beverages, that you know, if you just give new Twin Peaks a try the way that Frank is giving this green tea latte a try, you might really like it the same way that you liked coffee slash the old Twin peaks and uh maybe that's true maybe not uh i'm i'm drinking tea right now uh, just to find out if i can get myself to that place uh i did learn this week uh going back to the tom standage book a history of the world in six glasses that uh tea was both a medicine and a food stuff before it was ever a recreational beverage you can rub it on wounds people learned uh early on and uh, of course you can make it into delicious tea leaf salad or things of that nature uh and it only spread as a beverage from India into China uh, when Buddhism spread the same way because the Buddhist monks found that thanks to the presence of caffeine, it really increased their focus and concentration and made them better at meditation, which is, of course, an extremely Lynchian detail since nothing says David Lynch more than coffee and meditation. Uh, I also learned from a special exhibition at the uh, San Francisco Asian Art Museum uh, that Chinese emperors were buried alongside their tea and also alongside whole households worth of items used for preparing tea, uh, heating wine, serving banquets, those sorts of things. Um, And They also had toilets in their graves. They were buried with their latrines, which is more than we can say for um, millions and millions of people still in 2017 in life. There are millions of people worldwide who don't have access to um, sanitation and bathroom facilities. In 2017 AD and here, thousands of years ago, Chinese emperors had access to them in the afterlife. Uh, I felt that was significant and that I should mention it alongside the tea point because we're obviously going to get quite a lot more urination humor along with our um, coffee and tea humor in this episode uh, as we move on. This has been Ken's Beverage Corner. And I don't have anything quite as big as all of that to get out of this scene, but I do think it's worth noting uh, that, as you mentioned, JR, we we don't generally appear any closer to getting full-fledged original recipe classic Cooper back, but there are at least intimations in that direction in this sequence. You know, we see him reacting to the gun. We see him reacting to the words agent and case files. Uh, and in particular, we got a sign of self-awareness when he said he's lying. You know, we, we actually heard Cooper's voice come through a little bit. And it, I think, is the first thing he said since he came out of the light socket that evinced any degree of understanding greater than that of a parrot. Yeah, I think that's right. Moving on, we there's a scene where, getting back to Ken's point about urination, uh, Dougie, or, or 
Goop really, really has to use the bathroom. And his uh, one of his co-workers uh, helps him out and kind of bizarrely offers him a kiss as he's desperately needing to urinate. Uh, the, the kiss doesn't happen, and it's kind of an odd scene. Yeah, I hate this so much. This makes me so angry. And we meet this character at the meeting of the various adjusters and uh, so forth in this office. And once again, we have another woman who is nothing but a sex object and who is being flirted with unprofessionally at her job when she is trying to do her work by a sleazy male co-worker. And her response is not, leave me alone. I'm, I'm actually supposed to be working. This is inappropriate. This is a workplace relationship. Uh, but uh, talk to your wife. She's offended that he's married uh, and not because you know she has agency and, or because the workplace isn't an appropriate place to do this. So it's yet another preposterously badly written female character. And then things go from bad to worse when we get her offering to kiss Dougie when he is desperately needing to urinate um, because apparently your female sex object characters are not interested in your sleazy married um, non-playable character males uh, but are interested in uh, the protagonist just because he's there. There's nothing in any way appealing about Dougie and there's nothing that suggests that uh, anybody would be interested in him and this character has no personality and no agency whatsoever and the whole scene with her and the offer of a kiss reminded me of nothing so much as Tommy Wiseau and I hate to say mean things about Tommy Wiseau because he created The Room, which is my literal favorite movie of all time, uh, but nobody would accuse him of being like an astute uh, studier of human behavior. Uh, and what we get here from the acting to the uh, bizarre motivations to the juvenile focus on kissing reminds me noth- of nothing so much as a Wiseau scene, not even from The Room, like from Tommy Wiseau's neighbors, like an awful thing that makes no sense uh, at all. Like, it's it's such a new low for this scene. Series, and I don't understand uh, why Lynch and Frost allowed this to happen, but it's impossibly gross. Yeah, and, and I think this is as good a place as any to review the bidding on the David Lynch fridging watch that uh, Ken inadvertently uh, began a few weeks ago. Uh, this is really a mixed bag. Yeah, over the course of this uh, of this episode, I mean, it's hard to deny the misogyny point that Ken just made in light not only of the treatment of this character, who, as he noted, brushes off Darren because he's married, and then she openly makes a play for Dougie, who is also married. But we also see Lorraine at the beginning, who's clearly sporting bruises and who's dismissed as she's a worrier. We see the costumed pink ladies in the casino who are utterly superfluous unless we're to make something of the weird hand gesture being made by the one in the middle. Uh, we've got Frank Truman's wife, Doris, who's portrayed as nothing but a badgering shrew. We see Becky later being taken advantage of by Stephen. And particularly at the end, we see Charlotte, who's the young woman at the roadhouse, who is physically assaulted and is threatened with sexual assault by Richard Horn. So there's a lot not to like in this episode from the standpoint of its portrayal of women. On the other hand, we see Constance, Cindy, and Tammy, who in this episode is shot from a decidedly non-objectifying angle, they all fare better as investigators than any of the men. They're the ones who set matters into motion. We see Lieutenant Cynthia Knox being dispatched to Buckhorn. We see Constance uncovering a critical clue. We see Tamara clearly on the verge of identifying a critical difference between the Coopers. We even see Jade dropping the great northern key in the mail, which is probably going to prove significant later. Meanwhile, Did any mentally competent adult male character make any meaningful discovery in this episode? Yeah, we see the junkie mother's son in Rancho Rosa discovering the car bomb. We see Cooper realizing that Tony is lying, but that's all the male characters figure out in this episode, and neither of those revelations accomplished anything. So we've got this pervasive masculine ignorance. We've got a reliance on women's insights, and that's very interesting in this context, particularly given Gordon's and Albert's agreement that neither of them knows what's going on and that before they can proceed, they need to have a certain female character who is not yet identified come in and give Doppelcooper the once over. So it's a really weird balancing act between some women being portrayed as critically important to the, the action of this episode and other women uh, being portrayed in a very negative light. I do think a lot of them are critical because they're moving forward uh, male 
driven actions, though, uh, in which is kind of the extension of the women refrigerators point, right? Like they're they're here to drive the motivations of the male characters. But I agree with most of what you're saying. Uh, I do have huge Tammy problems still, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, I will say though, uh, in defense of Lynch and this episode, and part of your point there too, Kyle, that this is finally the first episode I think that passes the Bechdel test. We are going to get the double R in which two female characters have a conversation with each other that is mostly not about a man. So we will finally get past that hurdle five hours in. But but does it really count if it's two women talking about another woman who's in a bad relationship with a man? I'm not sure that really qualifies. I know it's it's right on the edge, but they do talk about some other things really briefly. So I, I made a check mark in my notes, but uh, it may be up for review by the uh, by the league office in New York. And we're going to go to the Silver Mustang Casino. And what I mentioned before about the insurance company, insurance companies and casinos are both consumer industries or involve a business that has business with a bunch of consumers at the same time. And in the context of insurance, it's a contractual relationship between the insured and the insurance company. And I had promised before, and for some reason, I'm going, now going to talk about the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. In every contract under the common law and in insurance contracts, I think in just about every state in the United States, uh, there's an implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. And what this means is that the insurance company cannot actively put its interests ahead of its insured. It cannot do something that screws over that insured, whether it's delaying a claim, not paying a meritorious claim. And this goes back to the point I was trying to make before. When Tony says it's a meritorious claim, we have to pay it. He's standing up for that implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing that as a matter of policy, most insurance companies are violating every single day by paying pennies on the dollar, by delaying claims, by not investigating claims. So in the context of a casino, you don't have that. You've got a highly regulated industry with very strict rules about cheating that mostly apply to the consumer at the casino. And it's interesting how Frank is, I'm sorry, Tony is dealt with at Lucky Seven versus how Supervisor Burns is handled at the casino. At the casino, the Mitchum brothers who own the casino see that Coop has gone into the casino, won $425,000 and just assume that Supervisor Burns was in on it because as a matter of Occam's razor, Sure, that's the most likely explanation. Uh, they're not going to assume that he's being assisted by some supernatural force from the Black Lodge that puts floating pictures in front of certain machines that allow him to win 30 mega jackpots. They assume that somehow Supervisor Burns is involved, and so they beat the crap out of him. Um, in the case of Lucky Seven, Tony is offended that someone would call him a liar. Uh, again, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense that an adjuster who's entire compensation is based on paying as little money as possible would go out on a limb and say pay this you know one individual claim because it is kind of ridiculous like i said before that somehow that adjuster would be in collusion with an insured as opposed to the regular day-to-day fraud and chiseling that most insurance companies are engaged in so here the bunnies uh Kyle, you mentioned the bunnies. What I thought was interesting about this scene is that you see the bunnies kind of file into the room and then stand in a corner against the wall looking bored. But we don't actually see them, I think, with any other people in the room. When they right. come in, we don't see anybody follow them in or or come in ahead of them. So it's really it's very weird and kind of an isolated scene. It makes you wonder, are they actually there? Are they a symbol of something? We don't know because there's no interaction between the beatdown or the confrontation in beatdown that's happening with the Mitchum brothers and Supervisor Burns and those uh, women up against the wall. We find out here that Cooper specifically won $425,000. Actually, Janie E. mentioned it earlier in the episode, but we get it repeated here that he won $425,000, which is $5,000 shy, of course, of $430,000. And we were told at the beginning to remember four three zero. So if Cooper somehow manages to bring in another five grand, it means something big's about to happen. Right. And uh, the Mitchums, again, want to know if Coop ever comes back again. But as far as we can tell, it's only to protect the casino's money. As menacing as, and as evil as these Mitchum brothers appear to be, doesn't appear that they're interested in Coop for, you know, reasons that tie into Bad Coop or the Black Lodge or Philip Jeffries, at least as far as we can tell. One of these Mitchums is a Belushi, right? That is correct. Jim Belushi is uh, is one of the Mitchum brothers. See, I recognize actors. Yeah, it, it was the younger Belushi. It's the far less significant non-70s Belushi. I'm not sure that counts. If he found a way to get the deceased Belushi in here, I would be, well, I, I guess I'd be not surprised, given what we've seen so far. 
Yeah, we've had plenty of dead actors appearing in this series so far. That wouldn't be anything remarkable at all. You're right. What was I thinking? <laughs> right. And the next scene, I think we you mentioned this in, in passing. Uh, so we find out that the guys in the Darth Vader car, uh, it turns out, are just car thieves. Um, the, the boy who lives with his junkie mother comes out into the street, crosses the street, and starts to touch the device that's at the bottom of the car. But then the uh, guys in the black muscle car stop and yell at him to get away. And it looks like they're just trying to steal the car when they are promptly exploded. Um, and th- that's kind of the end of the scene. The, the boy runs in the house and his mom starts to wake up. You know, one of the things that I've been wondering about this pair is if they're kind of a degenerated version of the Chalfont Fontaine pair of a, a mother or grandmother and a, a boy who kind of sit on the outskirts and watch same way that, you know, we saw the Chalfonts and the Fontaines watch uh, action, you know, going on in the show. It does seem like playing very loud noise rock or death metal as the captions apparently uh erroneously suggest would be a bad look for car thieves right like if you're trying to steal a a car you shouldn't be driving around in something that's so distinctive and makes so much noise uh anyway uh the car thieves get blown up and then there's a noticeable absence of bodies like it seems like they didn't invest in the practical effects to have the charred corpses in the fire not that i needed to see those but it's just it's a little odd I think there's one charred corpse. You don't see three, I'll grant you that. But I think we do see one lying on the ground. Yeah, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, the next thing that happened is that Jade is at a detail shop uh, getting her, her Jeep cleaned up. And one of the employees finds the Great Northern Key that Dougie or, or Coop had left at the bottom uh, and on the floorboards in the passenger seat, which she... Uh, because old style hotel keys would have a thing on them that would say, if found, you know, put in the mail and, and it'll... it'll They'll literally be mailed back to the hotel where they came from. That's a little note for all you millennials who have never seen a hotel key before. That's what she does. She drops it in the mail. And obviously, this is going to set some interesting things in motion. Yeah, I think this is the biggest seemingly minor point in this episode, uh, her putting Dale's Great Northern Hotel key in the mailbox, because you're right, JR, it's going to be delivered to the Great Northern. Of course, it's coming from Las Vegas, so it's probably going to be three or four episodes from now before it gets there in the mail. But when it gets there, uh, by this point, surely the Great Northern is using keyless entry. So when it shows up, it's going to be this this archaic relic, this anachronism, this blast from the past, and it's going to stir up a reaction, particularly when someone realizes whose room key it is. My bet is that Audrey Horn is going to be the one who recognizes the key when it arrives at the hotel. Uh, she's the one who obviously sneaked into Cooper's room in the original series, so she's more likely to remember the room that he stayed in. Uh, and that may even tie into the theory floating around that she's the billionaire behind the glass box research trying to get him out of the Black Lodge. Uh, and of course, Doppel Cooper we knew was evil, but he's even failing to observe checkout time. I mean, that's just common courtesy. And it raises the concern that the FBI may have been paying for this room for 25 years now. And I know they have reasonable prices, but after 25 years, it, it, that's going to add up. And that's taxpayer money there, people. And it does raise the interesting point that since we did hear Cooper tell Gordon, Doppel Cooper tell Gordon, that it's like he never left home. Well, if he's been renting this room for 25 years, uh, maybe he didn't really leave home. He's got a room to go back to. We now move to the Double R Diner where uh, Shelly is working and where her daughter, Becky, shows up uh, on a bread delivery run, bombs $72 from her. Becky has a, who's apparently her husband, according to the credits, because I have the last name, Stephen, who uh, previously is noted is not uh, one of Mike's little urban achievers. uh, But Stephen is very interested in cocaine and crudely objectifying his uh, wife, Becky. Um, I thought that the scene has a real direct call out to the pilot scene where Shelly and Bobby are in Bobby's car and the pilot, even to the almost the same lines in terms of Bobby pulling out some liquor and Shelly saying, what are, you, what are you doing with that? And Bobby's been dodging football practice and taking belts of liquor, except now it's uh, cocaine that Stephen has and that he shares with Shelly. And even though we know that people were doing cocaine in the background, um, I thought this was kind of a more sign of intergenerational degradation uh, going on in season three. In Bobby's certainly had his own experiences with cocaine, uh, though wasn't as much of a recreational user. Should we talk about Steven and how how extremely gross he is, or uh, are we going to wait till we're in the car scene? We are in the car scene. 
yeah, he's really gross. <laughs> he has he has a certain look to him that I've come to really uh, despise and associate with greasiness as I've become older and more respectable. I guess it's just this this like wispy mustache, you know. That's this the universal sign of I'm a teen or early twenty something who doesn't know shit about shit, but is going to act like I do. You know, it's just it's a highly punchable sort of a look that he has, and I have some leftover fury towards the actor too because of course he plays a, a real slime ball in uh, Get Out, which is which is a great movie and everybody should see it. Yeah, and and the I think the thing that everyone is taking away from this is Becky is portrayed here very much as the next generation's Laura Palmer. Uh, oh, yeah. And and we we get that uh, that long idyllic shot of Becky in the car from above, which is which is just and this is not a comment on the actress herself, just the way it was shot. Just it was just a beautiful scene. Uh, the way this is depicted as the the drugs take hold of her, and you're listening to the uh, the music. And, and what it reminded me of, uh, unsurprisingly, is the uh, uh, the sound and the fury, where Faulkner talked about the the arresting image of of this doomed young woman. Uh, only here it's inverted because Faulkner said the central image of the novel for him was the three Compson sons looking up from below at their sister's muddy drawers as she's climbing the tree to look into the house. Here we're getting an image of the face shot from above, but like The Sound and the Fury, uh, it's an image of intergenerational doom. Uh, here it's Laura first in the original series, now Becky, whereas in The Sound of the Fury it was Caddy before and then her daughter Quentin, but we're seeing very much uh, that same sort of thing portrayed as, frankly, only David Lynch can portray it. Yeah, and you know the scene of her face in the car. It, it happens after Stephen has put on the radio. Apparently, radio in Twin Peaks still continues to only play songs from the fifties and the sixties. And the song that's on is uh, "I Love How You Love Me," which is you know a, a really really great great song. Uh, here, I believe it's the Paris Sisters recording that they're using. This immediately made me think of Phil Spector. Phil Spector it was you know famous music producer who didn't write the song, but produced the song. And Phil Spector's kind of the same sort of eccentric genius auteur with possible weird women issues that made me think of David Lynch. This this particular song, he spent weeks and weeks rearranging and re-recording and remixing uh, until he made sure he got it exactly perfect the way that he wanted it to be. And then when it came out, you know, his the song is very similar to To Know Him, To His Love, is To Love Him, which was a hit that Spector's earlier group, The Teddy Bears, had in 1958 and there's an interesting kind of spat between the vocalist of the teddy bears who was really disappointed on hearing i love how you love me because it was like specter had found his new girl his new his new person that would be the center of this amazing piece of work and so i don't know it, it kind of made me think of becky here as david lynch's you know next laura palmer 2.0 I think that Phil Spector is a genius as well, and I think whatever you think about him, it is possible to say, as Isabella Rossellini did of David Lynch, that if he weren't practicing his art, he'd be killing women. Are you talking about Phil, Skep Phil Spector or David Lynch? Yes. I think you could very easily say if Spector weren't producing records, he'd be killing women. It's possible he managed to do both. Likely that he managed to do both. Yeah, it do that does appear to be the case according to a court of law. Right, exactly. So we, we go from here to the lucky seven insurance building where coop takes what what has to be the slowest elevator in the world i mean it was just excruciating three or four seconds between each floor i've never been in an office building that moved that slowly or that, that had an elevator that moved that slowly he comes out and then he wanders out and then again is paying homage to the cowboy statue yeah while we're still in the insurance building here with cooper uh it bears noting i think that we're getting this nice little titration of uh the details of old cooper's life back into to uh, Kuplicate's life. I like that name for him. Uh, it's maybe happening a little slower than I would like, or maybe some other viewers would like, but uh, it's neat how we're seeing uh, the repetition of the word case files, the repetition of the word agent. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Lynch wanted to call these various adjusters, or Lynch and Frost wanted to call these various adjusters agents instead of adjusters, because it's important for Cooper to hear the word agent. So he has coffee and agent and case files, and it's all of these things that are designed to slowly jog him back into... Uh, Dale Cooper hood again, uh, which I, you know, it's, it's a neat process if, as I say, maybe a little too slow for my liking. 
Uh, and from there, another kind of throwaway scene in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Office. Andy and Hawk are burning the midnight donuts. Still haven't found what's missing. And Andy, of course, distinguishes himself in this scene by uh, revealing that what he's been looking for in the files are Indians. Now we get to one of the high points of this episode. Uh, Dr. Kobe is now Dr. Amp. And as Ken earlier noted, the fucks are at it again. Yeah. This version of Dr. Amp is kind of uh, Alex Jones meets Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper from Dr. Strangelove on high-grade acid. He's, but he, As I noted before, he's got a cosmic flashlight and he's got some golden shit shovels to sell listeners to his podcast or video show or whatever in town uh, at twin peaks are jerry horn and nadine nadine in particular just seems enraptured watching or listening to dr amp uh, with his rants and you know it's interesting because i had predicted that Dr. Jacoby was running a scam with the shovels, but really, I don't think there's a scam. He says that they've got two coats of gold paint, and unless there's only one coat of paint, he's he's being honest about what he's selling. Yeah, it's a dumb product meant to bilk his listeners, but it's precisely the dumb product it says it is. I, I will give you that. I don't. I don't think it's a, a false advertising violation. I don't. I don't think there's any liability under seventeen two hundred for Doctor Amp here. It's. It's really a delight. This scene, though. I mean, do you ever watch like a, a Wes Anderson movie or something and think about how much fun the production designer was having and how much fun the um, props people were having and the costumes people like uh, just just making all of their little uh, miniatures and um, uh, just little um, tchotchkes and pieces of design that become part of the overall look of the thing. This is the Twin Peaks version of that. It just seems like everybody involved with making the little devices that uh, Jacoby uses to make an old-timey radio show turned video blog or podcast is uh, is really cool. Like, he's he's got a crank that plays Stars and Stripes forever, and he's got a little pulley system that brings him a flashlight with wings on it, and it's just all very elaborate and ornate and old-timey and fun. Uh, and as I said before, this is where the episode really picks up for me because we get to check in with some characters and yeah, they're all ensconced in sort of bright Barty bullshit, but uh, at least it gives us an excuse to survey the town uh, while listening to something believable and an awful lot of fun. Uh, it does make sense that Nadine would be up on this bullshit. She has been forever and always the worst. Uh, it's interesting uh, in a different way that Jerry Horn seems very interested in it, that he's uh, sparking up a dube while he's listening. But I, I just assume that was like a, a liberal irony sort of thing. Like he gets high and listens to the crazy conspiracy theories of the right. Yeah, I, I don't think that it's as right wing as you characterize, Ken. And I, I think comparing Dr. Amp to Breitbart is just a, a smear. He's not talking about globalists. He's not talking about black shoplifters. He's not doing any of the sort of uh, the things that you would tend to see uh, from that you know, particularly noxious corner of the right. I mean, he's more, these are more traditional. Uh, you could hear these same sort of conspiracy theorists from crunchy granola moms about Monsanto. Uh, and his rant is less directed at the government than it is at large corporations. That's how I read it. Yeah, I did too. And that's, that's why I think Jerry Horn makes sense here because he's this small, independent, hydroponic pot growing businessman. And, and you can certainly understand why he would uh, share those types of attitudes. Yeah, there's an awful lot of right wing buzzwords in his spiel. I, I agree with you that he's not going after the same kinds of targets. There doesn't seem to be a racist component to it. And I was pleased, as I'm sure Jerry Horn was, that he was going off about uh, pollution of our air and water and land. Um, but there's an awful a lot of uh, liberty and va so yeah, vast global conspiracy uh, is in here, which is a very Alex Jones sort of a thing. So, Regardless of, I think it may be safe to assume Dr. Amp's major concerns are selling shovels, sure. not, not politics. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, from here we go to the Pentagon, the center of the beast from Dr. Amp's perspective, perhaps, where uh, Colonel Davis and his subordinate Cynthia Knox are discussing the 16th time in 25 years there's been a hit on Major Briggs's fingerprints. This time it's in Buckhorn, where we have been watching the action unfold in previous episodes. Lieutenant Cynthia is dispatched to Buckhorn by Colonel Davis to investigate. And the thing that I want to ask is, was it coincidental that shortly after we see Ernie Hudson appear, we hear Doppelcooper say, I know who to call?
Do you believe in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the theory of Atlantis? Uh, if there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. And now back to the roadhouse in Twin Peaks where a, a band is playing and it turns out that it's David Lynch's song who's kind of the centerpiece of the band on stage playing the guitar. But I had initially thought that it was Steven. And then we have a scene where it's revealed that the roadhouse as a matter of policy appears to have less tolerance of smoking uh, than it does of uh, vicious sexual assault. Well, I'm glad to know that at least I'm not the only one who's confusing characters with one another. But uh, we get a couple of questions arising from the appearance of Richard Horn, who's not identified as such in the episode itself. You have to uh, track it down on the closing credits. One question, of course, is whether Richard Horn uh, is the Richard to whom the giant referred in episode one. Uh, I think I'm on the record uh, on where I stand on that particular question, but he is the first Richard we appear to have seen. Uh, the the more uh, widespread question, the more interesting question, though, is whose son is he? I mean, he's Richard Horn, so he's a member of the Horn family, uh, and the popular consensus appears to be that it's Audrey. Uh, I don't buy that. Uh, I mean, for all of her vixenish bravado in the original series, uh, Audrey essentially was a good girl trapped in a sex kitten's body. I mean, in actual practice, Audrey's sexual morality was as straight-laced as anyone's uh, on the original series in terms of what she actually did. So I question whether she would have a child out of wedlock. Now, it could be that Richard is Ben's son. I mean, he's he's aggressively mixing business and pleasure uh, in a Benjamin-esque way in this scene. Uh, and certainly having a younger bastard son who turned out to be such an actual bastard might well explain why Ben turned over a new leaf in his extramarital behavior, as we heard him talk about in the premiere when referring to Ashley Judd's character. Uh, but for my money, uh, I think that Richard is Jerry's son. And here's why. If it as appears to be the case, Richard is involved in the Chinese designer drug trade we've heard about previously. Well, what we know of him indicates then that he's anti-establishment, he's an authority-defying drug dealer, and that's precisely who Jerry's turned out to be. Plus, we know that the Horn family has a penchant for scuttling business opportunities as an act of parental defiance. We saw that in Audrey's and Ben's relationship. So it makes sense that Jerry, who grows his own and runs a legal hydroponic pot business, would have a son who undermined his livelihood by running illegal imported drugs. So my guess, Richard Jerry's son. Yeah, that makes a certain amount of sense. It's possible this guy is the grossest character we've seen yet, even uh, below the Steven level of grossness. And of course, we, we managed to end a half an hour in between the extremely disgusting bathroom sequence and now where we actually had some movement forward in the misogyny front with this uh, incident of sexual violence but uh between Richard Horn and Charlotte I I find it troubling not for just for the reasons we've talked about with the treatment of women but uh because I think I find all of the violence more troubling uh because we're not in the same realm that we were in the old Twin Peaks like in the old show, the idea was we have to show you all of this evil so you can root harder for all of the good that's coming to get it. It's fundamentally like a Joseph Campbell superhero comics battle of good versus evil show. And the forces of good are relatively powerful. You have the hyper-competent Agent Cooper and the true of heart Harry Truman and uh, their various um, deputies and uh, FBI apparatuses and, and other sorts of uh, helpers. So there's there's a good force countervailing all the evil in the world that we're meant to root for. Here, it's we've degraded into a place where it's all evil, where we have all of this stuff going on, and there's just no sense that anybody is coming for our side. Uh, our side being the the side of good, if that's that's who you want to root for in this. It, it's it's very prestige TV in that way. It's very true detective. Uh, it's like a nihilist approach on the old uh, dichotomy. And I mean, you could just read it as Bob is ascendant and. And Mike is descendant, but um, yeah, I, 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 to me, it's more Lost Highway or Man Without Qualities Volume 2 Descent into uh, National Socialism than it is the original series. And I'm, I'm sure that's 
where Lynch and Frost want it to be, but it just makes it all that much more unsettling. I think it's much harder to experience random acts of sexual violence when they're not being pushed back against. Uh, it's like the reveling in the sexual violence in something like Law and Order SUV, sorry, SVU, without the, uh, without the cop side being there at all, to me. Kyle, do you want to make any comment on that? No, I'm good. I uh, if he if he'd left in the part about the Dark Knight Returns, I was going to tell him I thought it was crazy to try and bring in a a nihilist deconstructionist uh, uh, grim dark comic book from 1986 because it clearly has nothing. <laughs> yeah, I think to do the Dark Knight Returns is a good parallel. I you know it's it's it's. I know, no, I know. I, I think <laughs> no, you're making the, the exact point I want you to. I I, I agree. It's uh it's it's that Frank Miller, you know. It, Okay, so we're at the Yankton Federal Prison where our investigator or agent Tamara Preston stares longingly at the Goodale's picture like she wants to make love to the picture or to him. And then she appears to see something divergent in the two Dales sets of fingerprints. Yeah, and I'm, I'm betting on there being uh, a sort of telltale letter hidden in the whorls of Doppel Cooper's fingerprints, sort of like the uh, letters that Bob put under the fingernails of his victims, you know, something that identifies him as Mr. C uh, or as a son of Robert. And my hope is that we're finally going to get the Tamara Preston that we got from The Secret History of Twin Peaks. And that when she reveals this to Gordon and Albert, uh, there will be a zoom in on her computer screen uh, that reminds us of Dale Cooper's freeze frame of the video image of James Hurley's bike. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm just hoping for anything that gives Tamara something to do other than look longingly at someone or be objectified by someone or speak in a sex kittenish voice towards someone. If they give her something to do and the actress continues to make these same choices uh, about the performance, then I guess I'll have nothing but uh, the performance to blame. But so far, it's been a complete unity of stuff to do and ways of approaching it in terms of making her just a sex object. And uh, it's not any better when the one thing she's given to do is a process scene where she's sitting in an office reviewing files and she still has to have a look of longing uh, affection or thirst towards uh, a picture, an inanimate object. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think that's right. Nearing the end of the episode, we have a Bad Cooper's phone call, the one that Gordon told the warden he wanted to listen into. He is playing off the fact that he knows the warden is watching him. And so he says, who should I call? Mr. Strawberry? The name of Mr. Strawberry really, really disturbs the warden, but we don't know why. We don't know who he is. And then he says, I know who I'm going to call. And he starts, you know, doing all kinds of weird stuff with the telephone, dialing a bunch of numbers. Everything goes crazy. The warden's trying to figure out, you know, who's he calling, but there's so much noise and flashing and alarms going off. Nobody can really tell. Finally, he picks up the phone and says, the cow jumped over the moon. We flash to the pager-like device that is apparently in Buenos Aires, and it shrinks into a little ball, uh, as Kyle referenced earlier, kind of the same way that Dougie did in the Black Lodge. The thing to me with this, and, and uh, there's a lot of weird in this scene and a lot of really cool uh, performance by Kyle McLaughlin, but the part about Mr. Strawberry is the part that sticks with me. I mean, he's talking about the fruit. Is he talking about John Lennon? Is he talking about the pies at the Double R Diner? Uh, and as you mentioned, JR, he directed this at the warden, who's credited as Warden Dwight Murphy. So when I hear Dwight and Murphy and Strawberry, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking of... 1980s National League baseball players, which can't possibly be right. That can't possibly make sense until you stop and think about the fact that earlier in the episode, we saw the car, th car thieves throwing rocks at the little boy from across the street in Rancho Rosa. And of course, the last time we saw rock throwing in Twin Peaks was in season one when Dale Cooper was taking them out into the woods for the rock throwing exercise. And he insisted upon the bottle being 60 feet, six inches away, which is, of course, the distance from the pitcher's mound to home plate. I don't know if any of it means anything, but I can't help thinking about that. As soon as we get a deputy Mookie Wilson, I'll be I'll be on board with it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and then our last scene with the credits rolling is Coop being really into that cowboy statute's shoes. So uh, what are your final observations about episode five? Well, for me, as we mentioned before, things seem to be moving a lot quicker. As you mentioned, we've probably been given, or actually Ken mentioned, we've been giving probably a little too little credit to Mark Frost for his influence. I think we really started to see that here. We didn't really get any answers per se, but with apologies to Gordon Cole, we got some linkage. 
which makes me think of sausage. Uh, we had plot lines distinctly being advanced. We got a connection between the corpse and Major Briggs. We got a connection between Dougie and the murder in Buckhorn. We now know the significance of the shovels. We got some insights into what's going on at the Silver Mustang Casino. Even if we saw Mike Nelson, Nadine Hurley, Norma Jennings, the Double R Diner. We saw Dr. Jacoby. We even had Frank Truman making a phone call to Harry to check on his health. Uh, we're given some hints that Deputy Chad, who we already knew was a jerk, uh, is involved in the Chinese designer drug smuggling operation. So we had a lot that happened in this episode in terms of advancing the plot. But there still were a lot of areas where there was no progress made at all. We had no Chantal, no coordinates, no secretary, no Ray, even though we know Doppelcooper's plan is progressing, uh, and all of those things are a part of it. We had no Gordon. We had no Albert. We had no indication of whoever the lady is who uh, Albert knows where she does her drinking. Uh, we're no closer to finding out what the log lady said was missing. We get no mention at all of the glass box murders. So at this point, uh, there are so many emerging connections. There's so many unanswered questions uh, that we're an hour shy of being a third of the way through Twin Peaks The Return. And Lynch and Frost at this point have given us an opening act uh, in which they haven't just introduced us to Chekhov's gun. They've introduced, it to, introduced us to Chekhov's arsenal. Yeah, I mean... On the one hand, I feel like if you're here for plot, this has to be an episode you like. It, hard to know how anyone could make it to hour five being here for plot, but if that's the case, you got you got some good uh, South Dakota stuff, and you get some good um, progress on Evil Coop. Probably the best scene in the whole hour for me is Evil Coop taking over the um, prison, taking over the systems, and freaking everybody out with the lights and the the intercoms and everything else and dropping code words and using magical evil powers. That's a very cool, well-executed scene, and it uh, projects menace while also moving the, the central mystery forward. So I, I can see how people would be very satisfied with that, but it was a very up-and-down viewing experience for me because I thought the first half was uh, was really draggy um, and concerned with plot lines that I wasn't very invested in. And in the second half, we finally get some nice stuff in Twin Peaks between the glorious Dr. Amp and the ladies of the double R, and then it's undercut by uh, the sexual violence in the uh, roadhouse and the additional Tamara squickiness and the awful... Doug E. and his Versexed or uh, underdeveloped female uh, co-worker. So, I don't know. It's a, it's a very mixed bag for me. Yeah, I, I thought this was a plot-oriented episode in its own way. I do think that we see, or I'm seeing more of Mark Frost's influence in this episode than right. in previous episodes. I, I do think that there are aspects about like the scene with Dr. Amp that remind me of the kind of humor that we would see in the show when David Lynch, even when David Lynch yeah. wasn't directing it, some of the best humor and the non-David Lynch humor of seasons one and two kind of shines through in that particular scene. But I thought it was a good one. And, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to episode six. Yeah. So I think we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening to Wrapped in Podcast episode five. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Leave comments for us on our SoundCloud. Go to our Facebook page. Let us know what we're doing. We're trying to get better every week. Uh, and we will be recording episode six, if not this week, then one week from today, uh, where we will continue to project menace and move the action forward. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Oh